Well, this morning I can think of no better way than to think on the remembrance of Christ in remembering how he has been faithful to Cornerstone Bible Church for the past 20 years. There is no better way to think about how God has been faithful to Cornerstone Bible Church for 20 years than to remember Jesus and to talk about an ordinance that is specifically meant for us to remember Jesus. So this morning, if you will, please turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be reading from verses 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 to 34. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because when you come together, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray.
Father who is in heaven, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name give glory. To you alone, you alone, O Lord, deserve all glory and honor and praise. So Lord, as we remember 20 years of your faithfulness to this local church, we remember that you love your church and that you love this church. Lord, indeed, the church is precious in your sight. For Christ died for the church. Christ shed his blood for the church. And so, Lord, as we seek to remember Jesus this morning, help us to do so in a way that will honor him. May all glory and praise be to the Son of God, who is slain for us, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Englishman, John Rogers, was born in 1500. He was educated at Cambridge and entered the ministry as a Catholic priest. Providentially, while in Holland, Rogers befriended a man named William Tyndale. Tyndale, of course, was famous for first translating the Bible into English. Tyndale shared the gospel with Rogers. Rogers was converted to Christ and nothing was ever the same. Nine months later, Tyndale was arrested and executed as a heretic. He entrusted his English Bible manuscripts to John Rogers, who later published the first authorized version of the Bible in English called the Matthews Bible. Rogers then went on to pastor a church in Wittenberg, Germany, but his heart yearned for England. He returned to London in 1548, where he pastored and preached safely under the Protestant reign of King Edward VI. But when Edward died, his half-sister Mary became queen. Mary took every means possible to return England to Roman Catholicism. And when I say every means possible, I really mean every means possible. Bloody Mary arrived as Queen of England on Thursday, August 3rd, 1553. Four days later, the very following Sunday, John Rogers preached a sermon against pestilent popery, idolatry, and superstition. He is quickly arrested. He was then tried and convicted of heresy. His charge? He was convicted on two counts. First, he stood against the church at Rome. And second, he denied the Roman Catholic teaching on the Lord's Supper. Rogers denied that in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup actually transform into the real physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. And for this, he was sentenced to execution. In February 1555, John Rogers, in the shadow of the church where he, was, where he used to preach, in front of many of the people he used to pastor, before the watching eyes of his wife and 11 children, was burned at the stake. <laughs> 
He was the first martyr under the reign of Bloody Mary. In her four years as queen, 284 Christians were burned at the stake, including men, women, and children. That's an average of 71 martyrs per year, which if you do the simple math, is more than one per week. According to J.C. Ryle, the principal reason why they were burned was because they denied the real physical presence of the body and blood of Christ in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. We've been looking at the ordinances of the church. And we noted last time that the first ordinance of the church is baptism. The second ordinance given by Christ to the church is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is also called the Eucharist. The term Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharisto, which means to give thanks. According to Mark 14, 23, when Jesus instituted this ordinance, he gave thanks. It is also called the communion because of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that partaking the bread and the cup is communion with the body and blood of Christ. It is also called the Lord's table from 1 Corinthians 10, 21. Now, all of these terms give us different facets to paint the reality that this isn't just any meal. This is a meal belonging to God. This is the communion meal. This is the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, the meal of thanks. It is a meal set apart and consecrated unto God himself. It is a meal belonging to the Lord. So let's look at the Lord's Supper. First, let's see the administration of the Lord's Supper. Notice the elements are simple. They are not complex. This is not a 10-course banquet. This isn't Kobe beef and caviar. This is just simple bread and simple cup. There is nothing special about this bread. It is not made in a holy oven. There's nothing special about this cup. It is not washed with holy soap. This is normal bread and normal wine or grape juice set apart for the purpose of worship. The point of simple elements is that this is an ordinance for all kinds of people, all classes of people. This is not just an ordinance for the rich or the powerful or the elite. This is an ordinance for all those who believe, for everyone who believes. Affordable, accessible, not elitist or discriminatory. I'll also say that with regard to the administration of the Lord's Supper, there is nothing in Scripture which tells us how often we are to celebrate it. Nothing. When I was an elder in Riverside, we used to celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month, just like we do here at Cornerstone. One time we had a visitor chide me because she said, well, the Bible says you ought to celebrate the Lord's Supper often, which in her mind meant weekly. And I thought to myself, wow, that's, that's a good argument. How am I going to respond to that? Until I actually looked at the verse itself. 
It doesn't say celebrate it often. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. It doesn't say eat it often. It says as often as you eat it. It doesn't tell us the frequency at all. And I believe this is purposeful. In the wisdom of God, God left it up to each local church to decide what frequency would best fit each ministry circumstance. Some churches celebrate it weekly. Some churches celebrate it monthly. Some do it quarterly. It is on a church-by-church basis. What really matters is that the church is actually celebrating it. That's what really matters. That should be the emphasis. Secondly, the views of the Lord's Supper. There are four different views on the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The first view is called transubstantiation. and This is the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic Church teaches the doctrine of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation means that when you take of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine or grape juice transform into the real physical presence of Jesus Christ. That is, the bread and the wine in substance actually become the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, such that when you eat the bread and when you drink of the cup, you are actually literally eating the physical flesh of Jesus Christ and drinking the physical blood of Jesus Christ. Why the big deal? Because in the communion, Roman Catholics believe that they are sacrificing Christ all over again. They are offering up Christ as a sacrifice to pay for sins on the cross all over again, week after week, month after month, year after year. Did you sin this week, brother or sister? Did you sin this week? Well, the answer is yes, of course. Well, according to Rome, you need to go to Mass, and you need to offer up Jesus on the cross to pay for your sins this week. Rome teaches that every time you attend Mass, you are witnessing Christ being sacrificed all over again, again and again, over and over. And this is exactly why every time you enter a Catholic church, you will still see the body of Jesus hanging on the cross because he's being crucified yet again. It is why it is called the crucifix because they are actively crucifying Christ. So he never comes down off the cross. Well, this is very, very sad, very tragic indeed because the Bible makes clear that Christ's sacrifice is finished. There is no more penalty to pay. It is finished. The sacrifice of Christ is done. It is complete. It is over. It is finished. The Father's wrath was completely satisfied. Oh, believer, taste the reality that the Father's wrath was completely satisfied. That cup of wrath was meant for you, O Christian. 
That cup of wrath was meant for you, O believer. But Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink the cup of communion. On the cross in John 19.30, Jesus cried, It is finished. The payment for sin is finished. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Once for all time. Never to be done again. And so Christian crosses all portray an empty cross. Because we know that the sacrifice is finished. And we know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead never to be crucified again. He has come off the cross, and he will not go back. Second view is called consubstantiation. This is the Lutheran view. Martin Luther rejected transubstantiation. Instead, he took the view of consubstantiation. This view states that there is a real, physical presence of Christ in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Now, that sounds suspiciously close to transubstantiation, but it is not exactly the same. In transubstantiation, the bread and the cup actually transform, actually morph into, actually become the very physical flesh and blood of Jesus. In consubstantiation, the body of Christ is present around the elements. The body of Christ surrounds the elements. The language that is used is always the body of Christ is in, with, and under the bread. Now, that's all very confusing, I understand. So I think an analogy may be helpful. Let's say you have a sponge, and you dip the sponge in water such that the sponge absorbs the water. Now, in this case, the sponge does not become water, nor does the water become the sponge. The water and the sponge are distinct and separate. The water is not the sponge, and the sponge is not the water. They remain separate. And yet, wherever the sponge is, there the water is. And wherever the water is, there the sponge is. Likewise, the sponge in this illustration is the bread in the cup. And the water is the real physical presence of Christ in, with, and under the elements. The bread in the cup, as it were, absorb the physical presence of Christ. They do not become the physical presence of Christ, but they absorb the physical presence of Christ. Note that the first two views, transubstantiation and consubstantiation, believe in the real physical presence of Christ in the bread and the cup. The last two views will deny any physical presence at all. Let's move on to the third view, known as the memorial view, also called the Zwinglian view. Zwingli, of course, we spoke about last time. He is the reformer of the city of Zurich. Zwingli believed that the Lord's Supper was entirely memorial. It is a symbol of remembrance. Zwingli said we must necessarily take the language as symbolic, as figurative. 
So when Christ says, take, eat, this is my body, he's really saying, take, eat, this is a symbol of my body. This is symbolic for my body. Zwingli said, it has already become clear enough that in this context, the word is cannot be taken literally. Hence, it follows that it must be taken metaphorically or figuratively. This is my body means the bread signifies my body or is a figure of my body. Communion, then, is purely a memorial of what Christ has done for us. It is a remembrance of the event that gave birth to the life of the church. It is a reminder, a commemoration. It is a symbol. The fourth view is called the Calvinist spiritual presence view. It's also called the reformed view. Calvin proposed another view mediating between Luther and Zwingli called the spiritual presence view. This is the view of the reformed churches and confessions since the Reformation for the past 500 years. Calvin denied the physical presence of Christ in the bread and the cup. And yet he said that the bread and the cup must represent something more than just a remembrance. It is indeed a memorial. It is indeed a reminder. It is indeed a remembrance, but it is something more than that. According to Calvin, when we partake of the elements, the real spiritual presence of Christ draws near to the Christian in a special way. There is no physical presence, but there is a spiritual presence. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, according to Calvin, when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, Jesus Christ himself comes to this church to visit us. The spiritual presence of Jesus Christ comes into this room as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup to draw near to us in a special way. The spiritual presence of Christ comes to walk amongst his lampstand right here in this room in Cornerstone Bible Church as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So in a real and special way, in the experience of the Lord's Supper, we can say that we feed upon the spiritual presence of Christ. We feed spiritually upon the person and work of Christ. We gain a special sort of spiritual nourishment, a special kind of spiritual sustenance. We are fed spiritually in a special way, in a way that is specific only to the Lord's Supper itself. What scriptural support do we find for the Calvinist spiritual presence view? Well, there's so much that could be said. Let me just mention one. Paul says, those who take the bread and the cup fellowship with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? That word sharing or share is a Greek word that you know very, very well. It is the word 
koinonia. It is the word fellowship. What Paul is saying is that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are actually fellowshipping with Jesus. Now, if you take this language seriously enough, then you have to realize that we are sharing in the body and blood of Christ, not just remembering it. We are communing with the body and blood of Christ, not just being reminded of it. Some translations say we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. But how? How are we fellowshipping with Jesus in the bread and the cup? How are we communing with him in the bread and the cup? How are we participating with him in the bread and the cup? How are we sharing with him in the bread and the cup? Physically? By no means. Spiritually. He draws near to his church in a special way. John Piper says, For the Lord's Supper to be what Jesus means for it to be, Something more must be happening than only eating, drinking, and remembering. When believers eat the bread and drink the cup physically, we do another kind of eating and drinking spiritually. We eat and drink, that is, we take into our lives what happened on the cross. By faith, by trusting in all that God is for us in Jesus, we nourish ourselves with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and died on the cross. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we feast spiritually by faith on all the promises of God bought by the blood of Jesus. So in our chart, we can see that all of the views hold to remembrance. That is not in dispute. That is not debated. The first two views, the Roman Catholic view and the Lutheran view, hold to a physical presence of Christ. The memorial view, the Zwinglian view, holds to no presence at all. It is purely memorial. It is purely a remembrance. Whereas the last view, the Calvinist view or Reformed view, holds to a spiritual presence of Christ. Now, I must say, the last two views, the memorial view and the Calvinist view, are both very legitimate biblical views. And just personally speaking, I would have no problem worshiping in a church which, which held either of those views. I do not think I could worship in a church which held consubstantiation. And I would not, indeed, I cannot worship in a Roman Catholic church which teaches transubstantiation. When I was in college, I took a course on the history of religion. And we were required to attend a worship service different from our own religion. So I chose Roman Catholicism. Because after all, Roman Catholicism is a different religion than Protestantism. And I remember going to this worship service in a Roman Catholic church. And at the end of the service, they held the Lord's Supper. And the priest went down in front of the church to the table, and there was one cup, a cup of wine, and only the priest could drink out of the cup. And everyone else filed into the center aisle, lined up one by one, and the priest distributed the bread to each person. I was waiting my turn. We got to the front. He handed me the bread. I took that bread, and I did not know what to do with it. I didn't know anything about transubstantiation, nothing at all. 
But I was confused. I was a little anxious. I was uncertain. I just had nothing to speak of. I didn't know what to do with it. So I put it in my pocket. I went home and I threw it in the trash. <laughs> now to the Roman Catholic, I was unknowingly, unwittingly, throwing the very flesh of Jesus Christ into the garbage. But according to the Bible, I was spared from participating in an unbiblical crucifixion of my Lord. I would not take of the bread in a Roman Catholic Lord's Supper. 284 of our brothers and sisters gave their lives, were burned at the stake under the reign of Bloody Mary because they would not either. Thirdly, let's look at the participants in the Lord's Supper. Who gets to participate in the Lord's Supper? Well, first and foremost, it is for believers only. This is not for unbelievers. No doubt unbelievers may observe the Lord's Supper, but they ought not to partake in the Lord's Supper. An unbeliever cannot rightly share in the bread and the cup without first sharing in Christ. This is an ordinance for believers. Also, this is an ordinance for believers in the context of the local church. This is an ordinance given to the corporate gathered people of God, to the assembled body of Christ. Five times in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of the church coming together when the Lord's Supper is eaten. Verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. This is an ordinance for the local church, the gathered assembly of Christ. This means that if you go home and in the privacy of your own kitchen, eat some bread and drink some grape juice or wine, that is not communion. That is not the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is not meant for you to go home and practice it in the privacy of your own kitchen. This is an ordinance for the local church, for the gathered people of God when they come together. It is an ordinance for the church of Christ. Now the question frequently arises, where does baptism fit with communion? With regard to baptism, there's a great amount of debate. There are many views. Let me try to boil them down for you here. The first view is the strictest view. It is called closed communion. Closed communion. This says that since communion is an ordinance for the local church, it should be restricted to each particular local church. Only baptized members of that particular local church are allowed to partake of that particular local church's Lord's Supper. 
the Lord's Supper is to be restricted to baptized members of one particular local church. So hypothetically, let's just say that Cornerstone Bible Church held to closed communion, which it does not, but let's just say hypothetically it did. That would mean that only baptized members of Cornerstone Bible Church would be allowed to partake of communion at Cornerstone Bible Church. If you come from another church, sorry, but closed communion says you cannot participate with us. The second view is called open communion. And this says that all who profess to be Christians, whether baptized or not, are allowed to participate in the bread and the cup. Those who hold to open communion argue that it is the only prerequisite is salvation. So since communion is meant for all believers, all those who profess Christ are welcome at the table. The third and last view is called close communion. Not open, not closed, but close. And this seeks to be a mediating view. This says that communion is reserved for Christians who are baptized. It basically says, if you are truly a professing believer, if you are truly a professing Christian, then why aren't you baptized? Or at least, why aren't you in the process of being baptized? If you truly are a professing believer, you should be baptized. Like we said last time, baptism is the sign that you are a part of the visible people of God, the new covenant people of God. You are a part of the visible church. Baptism is the first public proclamation of discipleship. The Lord's Supper, then, is the ongoing proclamation of discipleship. Baptism is the initial sign of membership in God's people. The Lord's Supper, then, is the ongoing sign of membership in God's people. All true believers in Christ should be baptized. If you are disobedient to Christ's command to be baptized, you should refrain from the Lord's Supper. The argument goes... Because when you approach the Lord's table, you should not be in persistent disobedience to Christ. Our last prerequisite is believers who participate in a worthy manner. Communion must be taken in a worthy manner. 1 Corinthians 11:27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But what does it mean to partake in a worthy manner? Does this mean you have to clean up your life to the point of near perfection before you partake of the bread and the cup? Absolutely not. That would be legalism. And the Lord's Supper itself is a reminder of death to legalism. So it can't mean that. What does it mean then? Well, the context has the answer. To partake in a worthy manner means you must treat the Lord's Supper as a solemn and serious affair. In 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 22, Paul chides the Corinthian church for not taking the supper seriously. Some people came hungry, and they treated the bread as dinner. Some even came drunk. Brothers and sisters, that is shameful. 
That is despising the church of God. The Lord's Supper is not a joke. It's not a drinking party or an occasion for drunkenness. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance given by the lips of the Lord of glory himself. If you take seriously the cross of Christ, then you must take seriously the remembrance of the cross of Christ. How can the remembrance of the death of our Savior be anything less than a serious and solemn affair? Secondly, you must pursue reconciliation within the body of Christ before the table. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 19, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you. Brethren, we must not approach the table with unresolved conflict. If you hold bitterness in your heart against a fellow believer in the church of God, the Lord's Supper is telling you, go resolve it. If you hold unforgiveness in your heart against someone in the church of God, the Lord's Supper is telling you, you know what you need to do. The bread is broken so that we could have healing in our broken relationships. The body of Christ was given so that our relationships could be made whole. Every single time you take communion for the rest of your life, the bread and the cup are saying to you, if you hold a grudge, you know what you need to do. Thirdly, you must examine yourself such that you are not living in unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight says, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There should be no pattern of unrepentant sin in your life. There should be no rebellion against Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the law of Christ, and the sacrifice of Christ, such that we do not trample underfoot the Son of God such that we do not eat and drink judgment upon ourselves, so that we are not guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is a regularly scheduled accountability session with Jesus Christ himself. Ultimately, to eat and drink in a worthy manner means that we must know, sense, and feel our own unworthiness before him. One of the most persistent thorns in the side of John Calvin was a group known as the Libertines of Geneva. Libertines passed a law in Geneva that a man was allowed to own a mistress. In fact, they had the audacity to use the Bible to justify their lust. They reveled in their promiscuity. They boasted about their immorality. And they even called themselves Christians. And they felt entitled to take the Lord's Supper whenever and wherever they wanted. But they knew, out of all pastors who would challenge them, Calvin would be the one. The showdown happened one Lord's Day in 1553. The Libertines came to church specifically to partake of the Lord's Supper. They sat in the pews. Calvin, knowing they were there, preached the sermon. He prayed the pastoral prayers. And he descended from the pulpit to take his place next to the elements. 
he prayed over the elements and he was getting ready to distribute them. All of a sudden, the libertines rushed towards the Lord's table. At that instant, Calvin flung his arms around the elements. His voice boomed through the building. These hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. After this, says Beza, Calvin's biographer, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with a profound silence and under solemn awe in all present, as if the deity himself had been visible among them. A man is to examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Fourth and last, let's look at the purposes of the Lord's Supper. I'd like to briefly discuss six purposes. There are many, many more, but we only have time for these six. The first is remembrance, and this is the most obvious most basic element of the Lord's Supper. We are to remember Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 24 to 25 says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus says it twice. Remember me with respect to the bread. Remember me with respect to the cup. First, let's look at the phrase, in remembrance. Communion is a reminder. It is a memorial. It is a remembrance. But a reminder and a memorial or remembrance are first and foremost based on something that has actually happened. You remember events which actually occurred. You are reminded of things which actually took place. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that Christianity is not some nebulous, ethereal religion based on mystical beliefs. No. Christianity is based on history. It is based on historical events. It is rooted in gospel events. It is rooted in historical fact. Jesus Christ really did Live, die, and resurrect on your behalf, and you are to remember that that actually happened. He is not a figment of your imagination. He's not a dream. You're not clearing your mind or getting in touch with your inner self. No. The bread and the cup are objective reminders that just as real as they are when you touch them and see them and feel them, Jesus Christ was just as real as that when he walked the face of this earth. They are objective reminders that we are to remember him. Jesus also says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this. We are active participants in the Lord's Supper. This is an activity. This is something that we do. We are to take the bread and actively eat it. We are to take the cup and actively drink it. We are to actively ingest the elements. The very act of ingesting the elements, the very act of eating 
and drinking the elements is itself a reminder of the active living faith that we have in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. It means that we are invested in this. We are laying hold of it. We are assimilating Christ as the bread of life. We are internalizing the fact that he died for me. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is important because we must remember that we are seeking to remember a person, Jesus. We are seeking to remember him, Jesus Christ. We are to remember a person. Don't depersonalize the gospel. Don't focus so much on the message that you forget who is the center of that message, Jesus Christ. Don't remember the cross without first remembering Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's like you husbands. If on your wedding anniversary, you remembered your wedding, but you didn't remember your wife, would that go over well? Would that honor her? Likewise, don't depersonalize your wedding. Don't depersonalize the gospel. Don't depersonalize the Lord's Supper. We are remembering Jesus. Secondly, proclamation. Proclamation. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word proclaim there is actually the word used in the New Testament for preaching. Preaching. The Lord's Supper is an act of preaching. It is an act of preaching to believer and unbeliever alike. You know, some people, they want skits in church. They want plays in church. They want drama in church. But you don't need that. The Lord's Supper is a drama. It is a God-ordained drama. It is a divinely designed drama. We are watching our salvation being acted out before our very eyes. This is the blood of Christ shed for us in a symbolic, dramatic fashion. Let me say something here, lest I be misunderstood. Despite the fact that the Lord's Supper is a proclamation in and of itself, we must always take it in connection with the word of God. There is nothing in the elements that tells us their significance. There's nothing inherent to the bread and the cup which explains what they mean. That's what the word of God is for. It is the word of God preached which explains the significance of the elements. It is the word of God preached which tells us what they mean. We ought always to partake of this divine dramatic proclamation with a proclamation of God's word. We must not separate them. Thirdly, unity. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper is not just communing with Christ. It is communing with one another. There is one bread which signifies the one body of Jesus Christ. There's not just a vertical element, there's a horizontal element. The Lord's Supper signifies 
We are to be united as a body of Christ. We are to be united as a church. Have you ever thought about why we pass out the elements? Have you ever thought about why we distribute the elements? Why do we do that? And there are many ways that you could take the bread and the cup. But why do we actually have you take the bread and pass it to another brother or sister? Why do we actually have you take the cup and pass it to another brother or sister? Why? The point is, we are all in this together. We are all in this as a body. We are all in this as a church. When you take the bread and pass it to another brother or sister, you are automatically connected to that person. When you take the cup and you pass it to another brother or sister, you are automatically connected to that brother or sister. There is an exchange, a reciprocity, a one another, if you will. We are in this together. The Lord's Supper, then, is an act of fellowship. It is an act of unity. We are to be connected to one another. Fourthly, fulfillment. The first Lord's Supper, of course, was inaugurated during the Passover meal. The two are related. Passover was promise. Communion is fulfillment. Passover was a shadow. Communion is a substance. Passover was a picture. Communion is reality. Passover was a type. Communion is the antitype. In the Lord's Supper, the old covenant gives way to the new covenant. If you read the account of the first Passover meal in Exodus, you will see that there are three basic elements. You have the unleavened bread, the wine, and of course the sacrificial lamb. The sacrificial lamb represented protection from the judgment of God. Now if you go to the gospel accounts, you will notice that all the same elements are there. If you go to the gospel accounts of the first Lord's Supper, you will notice that all the same elements are there, except one. Do you know which element is conspicuously absent in all of the accounts of the first Lord's Supper? The lamb. There is never any mention of a lamb in any of the gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper. The readers of the gospels would have said, well, we've got the unleavened bread, we've got the wine, but where's the lamb? There's no lamb. What kind of Passover meal is this? There's no lamb. The lamb was removed from the Passover meal because Jesus is saying, tonight, I am the lamb. I am the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I am the lamb sacrificed to inaugurate the new covenant. I am the sacrificial lamb to protect you from the judgment of God. Over a thousand years, year after year after year, lamb after lamb after lamb, all pointed to the one night when the lamb would be none other than the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, had been sacrificed. Fifthly, Thanksgiving. Mark 14, 23. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. In communion, we are to give thanks to God. 
When we lift up the bread to our mouths, we ought to lift up our hearts to give thanks to God. When we lift up the cup to our mouths, we ought to lift up our hearts to give thanks to God. Once your enemies, now seated at your table, thank you, Jesus. Now this also means that in the Lord's Supper, the atmosphere should not be dour. Yes, it is to be solemn and serious, but it should not be morbid and depressing. We're not to whip ourselves or flagellate ourselves or have it a form of self-abasement. Yes, we are remembering the death of Christ, but we ought not to treat it as the funeral of the risen Lord. This is a celebration, a, a giving of thanks for what Christ has done for us. Sixth and last, anticipation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. And he will come. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the glorious feast that we will have in heaven. The Lord's Supper is an appetizer of the wedding supper of the Lamb. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that Jesus Christ will come again for us one day, like a bridegroom for his bride, like a general for his army, like a king for his subjects. Jesus is coming back for us. So brothers and sisters, in a moment when we partake of the bread and the cup, let this be a reminder. This is a promise that one day you will be face to face with Jesus, drinking the fruit of the vine in his Father's kingdom. This is a promise that one day you will be face to face with the bread of life, the fount of life. One day we will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. Let us pray. Father, who's in heaven, when we think about communion and the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the hymn writer who over a thousand years ago wrote, We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. O Lord God, thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you for the preaching that it does to us and to our hearts that Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life that we could not and was sacrificed as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Lord, help us to remember that one day we will be with him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.